Welcome to AppSec Builders, the podcast for practitioners building modern AppSec, hosted by JB Avia. Welcome to this episode of AppSec Builders. I'm JB Avia, and today I'm honored to welcome Jim Manico, who, on top of being a famous opinionated security professional, is also the founder of Manico Security where he trains software developers on secure coding and security engineering. He is also an investor advisor for many companies, a frequent speaker on secure software practices, and a book writer with ironclad Java building secure web applications. Jim, why don't you introduce yourself as well? Jean-Baptiste, it is a pleasure to be on your podcast and your show. And like you said, I'm an opinionated application security professional. I just hope that my opinions are helpful to you and your audience. Opinions are always helpful, especially when they are held by smart people, Jim. So yes, definitely. And I'm looking forward to have you sharing a bit more about that with our listeners. So Jim, thanks a lot for uh, joining us today. So when we are a bit uh, familiar with your work, we can notice that your primal focus is developers. So you train them, you write books to educate them, you contribute to a lot of OWASP resources around education. Why is that focus centered on the developers? I believe that the application security industry traditionally has primarily been about security testing and DevOps and all these different pieces that are about assessment of the security of an application And I do not believe that you can achieve security through testing. I believe that the only way to truly do application security is to get developers to build secure software and to utilize tools and techniques and processes that will help developers author secure software. And I believe that our industry places very little focus on that important specialty because it's hard to sell. An idea, the idea that you must change your process, you must change your engineering capabilities and similar, it's not something that sells in the marketplace. It's education, which is not a very big part of our industry. So that's why I focus on that because it's my specialty and it's also my belief that's how you really do application security is to enable developers' capabilities around security in some way. Understood. So you've been doing that for a while, uh, Jim. What are the big changes that you have witnessed over the past years? I think the acceleration of DevOps is very interesting. Now, DevOps has been around for 20 years. This is about you know, automation around the building, testing, deploying, and other aspects of the SDLC. And we were doing that in the late 90s through a lot of custom scripts and similar. And I think that today there's extremely modern tool sets like Jenkins, GitHub Actions, and similar, where I can build a significant security-centric DevOps pipeline in a really short amount of time now, especially if I'm using GitHub Actions. Click, 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 and I got Dependabot. I got static analysis through SEMgrep. I got dynamic testing and similar testing tools really rapidly in terms of setup. And I believe in a few years that when we're using GitHub and similar repositories, advanced security testing that we see today 
will be natural and automatic in just a few years. Other trends that I've seen are for more intellectual is the migration away from traditional session management and the movement of stateless session management using JSON web tokens and the OAuth 2 and the OpenID Connect protocols and other JSON web token centric standards. This is a very big departure and change around how secure web and API applications are built. I also see a lot of new changes in HTTP response headers, content security policy, the different response headers to delete site data at logout time, ways I can configure referrer policy are very granular now, the advancement of cross-origin resource sharing and the capabilities being available in most every browser. I think that all those response headers have changed dramatically in just the last couple of years to give developers more security capability in modern browsers. I definitely agree, but don't get me started on JSON Web Token, Jim, but too late, you already did. <laughs> I'm not a, a huge fan of a JSON Web Token because I think that's an interesting evolution in the world of security. It's a bit complex to configure, right? There are several things you don't want to forget. And to me, that's a tool that has very interesting properties, but that is a bit hard to give as is to developers. Like, indeed, specifically need training and education in order not to misuse it, right? I got to be honest with you. Using JSON web tokens is radically more difficult. You now have key management, secrets management, the implementation of logout and idle timeout, which was easy in session management, is a challenge with JSON web tokens. Now, you can certainly achieve more scale. And if you're using microservices, you kind of need to use a JSON web token because it's difficult in a scalable, performance-friendly way to tie sessions together among many small services. So, Jean-Baptiste, I really like the back-end, front-end pattern, the BFF pattern, where I have more of a traditional session between my JavaScript client or web client and the main API that serves as a reverse proxy to a fleet of microservices that is back in my private infrastructure. So that way I can still benefit from the statelessness of microservices and performance, but still have a traditional session between the JavaScript client and either a gateway or a reverse proxy API. So all the mess of JSON web tokens and microservices are behind the scenes. So I actually agree with you. I really don't like JSON web tokens when you push them to the client all the way. I try to avoid high-powered access tokens and JSON web tokens from being in a client. In particular, I mean like a browser web client because there's no good place to store sensitive data long-term in a web client. It's just not mature enough for that yet. So if you're going to use JSON web tokens or if you're forced to, because of the use of microservices, again, the pattern is called the BFF, the back-end, front-end pattern, which basically takes the mess of microservices and JSON web tokens and pushes it back into your private infrastructure. Aligned. <laughs> Fully aligned, yes, Jim. Thanks. So I think that's a very interesting time to be in security today because, yes, we see a lot of things evolving. You mentioned headers, content security policy. So yes, we have a lot of uh, new tools that are evolving and changing the security capabilities that are into the hands of the developers. 
So that's a necessary step in the journey towards being more secure. There is no question about that. Now, those tools and those security primitives are still extremely complex to implement. If you take a look at the latest security headers that are centered around Spectre, Meltdown, Protections, like the complexity of those is really insane. And I feel either we need weeks of training for the developers that will have to use that properly and follow with the mess of like a heterogeneous brothers, etc. Either we need something in between, like a layer that will automatically configure the application. And I think this is where there is a border between what you can teach the developers and no one has infinite time to teach developers and what the tool should be responsible of. And so you said one very interesting thing in your introduction, Jim, is that you teach the developers to use the right tools. And I think that's also a big part of the awareness. It's to help them find the right tools. So let's talk about Spectre and Meltdown briefly, right? Spectre and Meltdown is the ability to read data out of a CPU cache, right? And in my world, this is mostly a problem with the web browser. Like I'm worried about Chrome and Firefox and similar having an attack with malicious JavaScript, cross-site scripting primarily, or a malicious third-party library that allows malicious JavaScript to read data out of a CPU cache. And we saw a demonstration from Google who provided a JavaScript demo around exactly how this could be done. Now, how is this problem solved? The problem is usually not solved by a web developer building a website or an API. The problem is solved by a browser developer. And I do not teach browser developers. I teach the masses of web and API developers how to build secure web and API applications. But the defenses that really stop Spectre and Meltdown, with my understanding, Jean-Baptiste, is like site isolation and similar that is built into browser technology. Also, the use of an HTTP-only cookie will also help in stopping these class of attacks. And I do agree, to teach a browser developer how to be more resistant to CPU attacks like Spectre and Meltdown, that is extremely sophisticated knowledge. But as long as web developers and API developers are using basic security principles, they're doing okay. And the other thing is, if someone is using a very old browser, there's very little a developer can do to stop these classes of attacks. So I, I also recommend that developers, as much as they can, they use JavaScript detection to understand what browser is being used by their customers and as best as they can, do not allow older browsers to use their sites and APIs. So luckily, it depends on which developer you're trying to influence. For Spectre and Meltdown, I need to influence the browser developer. And for web, for the standard web and API developer, I'd like them to use HTTP only and other cookie protections and to also make sure that they're only allowing as modern of a suite of browsers as they can possibly get away with. Yeah, I would even say we have to influence uh, CPU designers <laughs> on top of the browser vendors. But I think uh, one of the flaws here was that no matter how safe is your browser, getting JavaScript execution in one page, which is not so hard if you think about several kinds of attacks on third parties, for instance, 
would allow you to read any part of the memory. And that's something that doesn't depend on the browser, actually, because it's like just running JavaScript. And I think that was the big uh, demonstration of the Google demonstration, making uh, like a Spectre exploitation mainstream. So one of the way to counter that was that series of very complex HTTP headers, such as scores, etc. And I think that's the same story for about any kind of interface for the API that is very complex from a security standpoint. And you have examples, for instance, of tools that made the life of security developers easier. And so one example that I like is NACL, for instance, you know, the crypto library that took a very opinionated stance at what kind of helpers it will offer to the developers. So it's much less flexible than a regular crypto API, but you don't need to be a security expert in order to use it. What do you think about those initiatives, uh, Jim? First of all, you mentioned NACL. So this is a cryptographic library, conventionally known as LibSodium, I believe, that does correct. Yes. That does good crypto in a library. And I think that is a great idea. They are very opinionated in decisions they made there that have stood the test of time that are very good. I believe similar libraries for crypto, like Google. Google has a library called Google Tink, which is also exceptional in the very opinionated decisions they made. And so I like that idea because Slibsodium and Google Tink are really usable utilities. Even though they're opinionated, they're not so opinionated where they're not usable. They're very usable and very straightforward to use. So if you're being very opinionated, but still providing usability for developers to author software, I do like that idea as well. And I do not think that the suggested defenses around stopping Spectre and Meltdown are reasonable. And I don't think that's the way the problem is solved. I think, that, again, I believe the problem is solved in the browser itself. And Firefox and the Google team and other teams who are building browsers are actively working on making those protections automatic by doing various types of browser isolation and other types of defenses. But to your point, if I can get JavaScript execution in a website, yes, I can likely read the CPU, but I can also do request forgery. I got cross-site scripting. I can modify content. The point I'm trying to make, Jean-Baptiste, is any kind of cross-site scripting event is game over if the attack executes. Yes. And to your point, I don't think the real issue is Spectre and Meltdown. I think the real issue is that cross-site scripting defense, otherwise a better name would be content injection defense in a web application, is madly destructive. And there's no simple way to stop that. The common developer who's using Backbone and Angular and 30 other JavaScript libraries, it struggles to keep them up to date, massive amounts of JavaScript code, they're almost always going to have cross-site scripting. And even if you're using the latest version of React with best practices, it is still easy to make a mistake in a variety of different ways that will bypass React security. And so I think that's the bigger problem, Jean-Baptiste, not Spectre Meltdown or how to approach it, but just how to build a secure user interface on the web, period. And we see that Content Security Policy 3, which allows for strict dynamic. I'd also say that Trusted Type standard is helping a lot in providing that capability. The only problem with Content Security Policy 3, it's not supported in IE 11 or even worse, 
It's not supported at all in Safari. And in IE 11 support, only some of my customers need that. Most of my customers don't use IE 11 anymore. And according to the W3C browser statistics, IE 11's global use is statistically 0% at this point as of last month. So we see IE 11 finally starting to go away. But content security policy three, I was looking at the Safari technical preview. And within the last couple of weeks, I see players that are building content security policy three support into Safari. So now, now if we can get developers to implement CSP3, I like a non-space strict dynamic policy per Spagnolo and Weichelbaum from Google's research, and I limit what browsers I allow my customers to use, I can build some extremely rigorous security today. And I think that if when we go ahead a year or two, year two or three, and I have CSP3 everywhere and techniques to limit browsers and a little more awareness about third-party libraries, that the capability of developers to build a secure application without XSS is going to be more realistic. That's my hope, Jean-Baptiste. All we have is hope, but I do agree with your conjecture. The cross-site scripting in complicated web applications is really hard to avoid, even with talented security-centric developers. And that's a problem with web development in a big way. I agree. It's still easier to avoid today than I think 20 years ago when you were using like templating engine server side. Yeah, the things were on one hand pretty common and on the other hand pretty neglected, even at the beginning by security people. And so, yeah, I think things moved uh, in a very, very positive way. And we can uh, only thank Google here, who is really moving forward W3C and leading uh, implement testing implementations with Chrome. And I think Trusted Types was born from an initiative to solve the XSS problem at the Google scale internally. And so that's insane to see how well they managed to solve it internally. It's not like 100% solved, but the features are breathtaking. It's like 90% solved. And sharing that to the broader audience is amazing. As you said, yes, it's not trivial to implement that yet. Within your uh, customers, Jim, what are the strategies that you see to actually implement those kind of initiatives? It's complex at the scale of a company. At scale, it's extremely difficult. It requires, at least today, it does require educating developers, which is not a very scalable activity. I realize that's difficult. So my goal is usually to educate the lead security champions of each developer team around content security policy using the Spagnolo Weichelbaum methodologies on top of libraries that use trusted types. So who are these rock stars? We're talking about Chris Kristoff from Google is the author of Trusted Types, and Michel Spagnolo and Lucas Weichelbaum have been giving talks about how they roll out content security policy, which uses CSP level three on the conference circuit. I'm a big fan of their methodologies. Jean-Baptiste, in any hero's journey, you have helpers. I'm on a journey to learn about secure coding. Even though I'm a teacher by trade, my real profession is being a student so I can learn these technologies enough so I may teach them properly. 
And on my own journey of learning about this, these three individuals have helped me the most. Again, I want you to look these people up and look at their work. Michelle Spagnuolo, Lucas Weichelbaum, and Chris Kristoff. Those are the three top defenders of XSS on the planet with the kind of knowledge and work that they are doing. And I'll credit Michael West as well from the W3C, who has done a lot of work with content security policy at the standard level. Google is no perfect company. No one is. But a lot of the engineers at Google have led the charge in providing good security standards so we can build secure web applications. And the way that I work with companies to achieve this knowledge at scale is not to influence every developer. I can't do that realistically in training. But I can influence the main security champions that reside in each team who are dedicated and responsible for secure software. So I try to influence those leaders so the knowledge trickles down to other members of the team. And that, of course, assumes that a company even has security champions embedded with their developers in the first place. But that's the best way, I think, that this kind of knowledge will trickle into large companies. Because as a side note, Jean-Baptiste, a lot of application security leaders have been telling me that education is not important or that education is not going to work. And I strongly disagree. We do not have methodologies that automatically and magically provide security without developers being involved. We still need developers to write secure software. I know that your company does some great work. I know that you're working on a RAS product that does provide great security, but that's not magic, and it's not going to work alone without developers being involved in some way. So I'm still like a lone wanderer with my you know cape and walking stick, wandering slowly through each company that I can to influence as many technical leaders as I can to teach them about secure software as best I can. I know you're not alone, Jim. There is no question about that. And uh, education is definitely a critical pillar of any security strategy. I think there is no question about that. And it will likely be for a very, very long time. But you cannot disagree with the fact that some classes of vulnerabilities have disappeared from time to time. If you take the right framework with the right language, you can get rid of some classes of vulnerabilities. Yes, I was debating on Twitter with one of the leads of LinkedIn. Now, if I had a company that had one framework and the experts working on that one framework, then I can eliminate classes of vulnerabilities and not have to teach my developers about that class of vulnerabilities. But Jean-Baptiste, you've been around for a long time. How often do you show up to a company and they only have one framework and one way of building web software? That's very rare. Well, it happens till the day where you buy another company, right? <laughs> oh, we have this one framework. Oh, yeah, you have that one framework, then that other version of your one framework on that project. Then, oh, that legacy one has an even older version of our framework. Oh, yeah, that acquisition has all those frameworks. So the idea that a company has one framework only, it's always up to date, that is extremely rare. That's like less than 1% of companies. The reality, Jean-Baptiste, is I'm using 20 frameworks. I got hundreds of developers. 
We're all doing different things and having some knowledge around building secure software is fundamental to understand how to remediate the issues that show up in testing. I wish I only had one framework. If I only had one framework that was maintained by many architects who knew application security, then Jean-Baptiste, I agree with you. And that does show up once in a while, but it's the exception. Yes, it's not a realistic assumption, but let's look at the broader picture, Jim. So I'm an optimistic person at heart. And so my thinking is that progressively, most frameworks, most languages will evolve towards an ecosystem that is more and more secure by design. If you take a look, for instance, at PHP, the PHP that you wrote in 1995, and I wrote a lot, was very unsecure because you had zero frameworks. Now you have things such as Symfony or Laravel that have amazing helpers and make the job of developers much easier. Obviously, it's not perfect and you still need to read the documentation, etc., but it's better. If we take a look at a time frame of maybe 10 to 20 years from now, don't you think that most frameworks may have evolved towards a, a most secure version of themselves? And you can call me a fool, Jim. <laughs> One of my dearest friends from Canada is a friend of mine, a developer named Jean-Baptiste Laplace, and I haven't seen him in over a decade. So just to say the name Jean-Baptiste again reminds me of my old friends. I'm going to keep using your name. I like It's a great name. But that aside, I agree <laughs> with you 100%. In fact, Jean-Baptiste, I'll even say this. Unless we have a radical transformation in the security capabilities of frameworks, there's no chance of achieving application security at scale. So not only do I agree that that's what's going to happen to the primary frameworks, we have no choice but to accomplish that. And if we don't accomplish that, we're not going to achieve application security at scale. So I think big governments like you know the French government, US government, whoever's got extra money lying around, I believe that if governments want to invest in cybersecurity, they should be spending billions and billions of dollars to assist the major frameworks of the day have integrated security. Nobody wants to spend that money, though. I watch like, you know, different governments, they'll spend billions of dollars for bullshit. Forgive me. They will. But they won't spend money to really address the heart of our security problems, which is the fact that our languages, frameworks, and components that we use to build software today are all radically difficult to secure or need massive updates. So not only do I agree with you, I think it's the only hope for society to solve this problem. And my belief is that like, if I was in government or politics or policy, I'd want to see all this money that governments are spending on cybersecurity now, that they spend it on building elite developer teams who will work with the frameworks to integrate and test security at the framework level in better ways. That's my hope and dream. You know, quote me on this, Jean-Baptiste, when I retire from commercial activity and I'm much older and grayer than I am now, then I'd like to go work for some government with big money and funding to build teams to work at the framework level and improve the security of frameworks so every company and organization in the world 
will benefit from those enhanced frameworks. I know some of that work is happening now, but it's happening slow. And the frameworks still, all of them, still require advanced, complicated knowledge to use securely. And that doesn't scale. Yes, and that's a good point. Actually, I was thinking about some of the good security evolutions of the past years. And I'm thinking about like Ruby on Rails that popularized a lot of good practices on the web. I was thinking about Rust that basically solved the most buffer overflows uh, instead of C, for instance. And I was thinking about Chrome and W3C and the MyQuest team that you mentioned earlier that also brought a lot of goodness. And none of that, I believe, was uh, led by a governmental entity, right? Ruby on Rails is Basecamp. Chrome is Google and uh, Rust is Mozilla, unless I'm mistaken. The point is, it's all happening too slow. Ruby on Rails, the only problem with Ruby on Rails is that you have to use Ruby on Rails. What an awful framework with one of the <laughs> best security capabilities of any framework. The way that their data flow works, and I am not a fan of Rails. I will can never, that, ever use it for an application. But... But, 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 Disclaimer, but, Jim's opinion here. <laughs> but I want to be objective, and they've done incredible work when it comes to security. Absolutely. But this is happening too slow. What about spring? And I can still make big mistakes in Rails. I can still make big mistakes in spring and symphony and every other framework out there still requires sophisticated knowledge And the slow progress we're making is not enough progress. And I don't even know why I'm bringing up government and policy. I rarely discuss those topics. We're in an era where governments are starting to spend big, big money on recovery around the world. And I would just like even just a couple billion dollars directed at developers that are advanced, being paid properly working specifically to do security in the common frameworks of the day. Just let's hit Spring. Let's go hit JBoss. Let's go hit Symphony. Let's give Rails some more security support. The .NET, Barry needs some support. Just 10 frameworks, $100 million worth of development effort for each of them, and we can revolutionize the world. But again, nobody wants to spend that money. They'll spend it on a new choo-choo train or some other like manufacturing plant or like some other like research project, but let's spend real money, real money on the most common frameworks of the day. And we can advance application security more than the slow, gradual progress that we've been making for the last 20 years. And so, Jim, you're a Java expert, I think. I'm not. So if you had to start from scratch a new Java project today, what would be the most secure setup that you could recommend? Okay, this is, again, very opinionated. Number one, I would minimize my use of third-party libraries to the essential only. And I would probably use a small handful of libraries. Like for my JSON parsing, I would use Moshi. For my cryptographic needs, I would use Google Tink. And for my framework, I would not use Spring. I would use my own custom, lightweight framework for my project specifically, built by an architect of my team. And on top of that, no framework servlet endpoint, I would use a small handful of well-vetted libraries 
with a commitment to keep them all up to date. On the client, and I'd most likely use React. I believe React has the best balance between usability and security capabilities. And I would like military style train all of my React developers before I let them write code for me. Because in about an hour to four hours, I can turn a React developer into a React security architect. I've been tutored on that through my friend Ron Paris, who I work with, one of the best React security people I know. So I'd use React, and I'd really minimize the use of third-party JavaScript libraries besides React. No tracking BS or shift left. I'd really minimize what libraries I use. On the server, again, I'd use my own lightweight framework. So if there's a problem, I can modify the code myself. Have you ever had to dive into Spring to fix a problem? I don't want that burden. And even though it will take me some extra work to build some of the piping that comes out of Spring, I'd rather have that code myself that I can work on. I'd also make sure I only have senior developers on my team. I do not believe in junior developers. And that is a harsh reality. I know a lot of junior developers who are having trouble getting work because a junior developer who can't really operate in a production environment, they end up costing a company more than they benefit from that developer unless they stay there for many years. And most startup developers don't stay for a few years. They become junior developers. They join a company. They get some training. They can get a bigger salary and they leave. And that ends up being an expense to a company, not a benefit. So my advice is in your career as a developer, Go from developer to middle developer and skip the junior developer part. No one needs a junior developer. Just skip it and go right to being an advanced developer through your own boot camp training or whatever. But nobody wants a junior developer because they end up causing more harm and taking up more time than being good. And this is, I don't say this to be rude. I say this to be realistic about the state of our industry. So how do you go from out of school to not junior developer, uh, Jim? Just skip it on your resume. Just say (laughs) senior developer. Honestly, I would recommend coming out of school to go take a boot camp. Take like a a three to six month boot camp after you get your initial university degree and learn some specialized knowledge in the frameworks that are being used today. I know for me as a developer... I was already a hobbyist developer doing a lot of extra work outside of school, but it's not fair to recommend to everyone. So I would say finish university degree, then go to a coding boot camp just for a few months. So you really gain some skills in JavaScript development, client-side JavaScript, API development, database development that are production quality and modern And then go look for a job and see how much more of a salary and see how much more opportunities will be available to you when you have realistic skills that makes you productive right away. And forgive me, Jean-Baptiste, you know my limitations. I'm going to admit something to you. I'm a capitalist. Please forgive me. Oh, no, please forgive me. I'm a capitalist. But running capitalist companies, we want employees to be productive, to help us make some capital. And so bringing in a junior developer who has no need to stay, and I spend all this money and effort training them, and then they leave, bah, I don't want that. And neither do most big companies. So my advice, coming out of university, skip being a junior developer 
and jump right to being a productive developer. Thank you very much. You're welcome. But so what you're saying is that the universities don't do a good job at training developers, basically, no. right? No way. Yeah. That's where the government could spend some of that money, maybe. Maybe so. Maybe so. But I think that if you want to be a professional <laughs> developer, you're better off skipping university, go to a nine-month developer boot camp on modern languages and development techniques, and you will have a better chance of getting a well-paid job than going to a university program. The problem is university professors are mostly not writing production code for a company. They're academics. And it's so difficult to keep up with modern development techniques that university, even the best ones, tend to be behind in what's needed in software development and, for that matter, security in real development shops today. I feel terrible saying this, by the way, Jean-Baptiste. I wish it was not true. No, but I think that's the direction of the world anyway. We need more developers today than we needed 10 years ago. And in 10 years from now, we will need even more developers than what we have today. So it's required. I think there is no choice but to have those education methods evolve. Otherwise, mechanically, the level of a junior developer will only go lower and lower. So what you are saying makes sense, uh, Jim, definitely. But it makes me feel filthy to say these words, though. <laughs> <laughs> you train much more developer than I do, so I think uh, you know what is out there very well. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Jim. Is there anything you'd like to share, Jim, before we finish? I just ask that if you're listening to this podcast, please say hello to me on Twitter. That's where I do most of my public communication these days. My Twitter account is Manicode, M-A-N-I-C-O-D-E. So if you're listening now, Please just say hello to me on Twitter. Tell me if you care about secure software and secure development. That's all I care about. If you disagree with anything that Jim just said, just let us know on Twitter. We'd be happy to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jim. That was uh, really, really fun uh, to talk about all of those various subjects with you. I really appreciate. I can't wait to actually meet you when the real uh, world comes back and maybe in Paris. Paris is one of my favorite places in the world. I will be in Paris as much as I can. So let me see if I'm pronouncing your name properly. Let me try to be Frenchman. Jean-Baptiste Aviat. My God, yes. That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> But next time, you can just call me JB, Jim. All right? You got it, JB. <laughs> perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Have a good day yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode of AppSec Builders. You can find all the resources discussed during this show on www.appsecbuilders.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to get updates on our upcoming episodes. 